listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now bring you Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. Uh, today, once again, I have the great uh, pleasure and honor to have a guest on for the show, uh, another enthusiastic Jewish entrant into the Catholic Church. And she actually was on a couple of months ago also, uh, giving her witness testimony. So today's show won't be primarily her witness testimony, although I do intend to start with um, asking her perhaps to give a five or ten minute account of, of some of the more spectacular events that brought her into the Catholic Church. Um, but uh, if you want to make a note of it and want to listen to the archived show with her full witness testimony, which I strongly recommend, it's incredibly uh, beautiful and a quite supernatural story. It was the March 19th show, March 19th, 2016 show of Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. So if you go to the Radio Maria website, radiomaria.us, and uh, click on the uh, listen to podcasts link, and then click on the show Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, which can be found under J. You can uh, find the March 19th show. And as an aside, for a while there, the shows were not being uh, archived, but now they're back to being archived, so you shouldn't have any trouble finding the show. While I'm on that topic, I've also started archiving the shows on YouTube, at least some of the shows, more most particularly the shows with the witness testimonies of other Jewish converts. So if you go to uh, YouTube and look for uh, Roy Shoman and Radio Maria, you will find the audio of some of the past shows where I've had Jewish converts give their witness testimonies, including uh, Alyssa, who is today's guest. But before I invite her on to uh, talk to us, I um, did want to mention something about the feast day we just had a couple of days ago, the Feast of uh, Saints Peter and Paul, because it strikes me as very interesting and telling that I think we're all aware that St. Peter was the apostle to the Jews and St. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but St. Peter very explicitly was given the charter of being... Um, the apostle to the Jews, and in fact, Galatians, it's explicit in Galatians 2, chapter, uh, excuse, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, uh, this is St. Paul speaking, and St. Paul says, instead they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. So work through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. So I just wanted to point out that it seems very telling. We know, of course, that St. Peter is the foundation of the church. Uh, Jesus himself said, of course, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So the rock on which Jesus built his church was the apostle to the Jews, not the apostle to the Gentiles. One would think that if the church was centered on the Gentiles, so to speak, 
the rock, the foundation rock of the church might have been the apostle to the Gentiles, but no, it was the apostle to the Jews. So what's that tell us? Uh, this is speculative, but I would suggest that it tells us that the church really is founded on Judaism and the choice of making Peter the apostle to the Jews and also the first pope and the foundation stone of the church was not coincidence. And of course, I think we're all aware that the answer to the question, why did Jesus have 12 apostles and why did the number of apostles have to be 12? is because, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel and all of the covenant of the Old Testament was built on the 12 tribes of Israel. We see that over and over again. For instance, um, when, um, when Elijah built his altar for his challenge to the prophets of Baal, he built it on 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. When the ark was uh, carried across the Jordan River, uh, it was, uh, the the uh, it was carried across on twelve stones, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel, and so forth. So the um, and in fact, Jesus said uh, said at one point in Matthew nineteen, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man shall sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So there we have Jesus making this parallelism between the 12 apostles sitting on the 12 thrones and the 12 tribes of Israel. So I just wanted to use this opportunity to suggest that the feast day of Saints Peter and Paul are redolent with the uh, sense that the church really did spring out of Judaism. So um, having finished that digression or that introduction or whatever, are you there, Alyssa? Yes, I am. Hello, Roy. Thank you for Hi. having me back. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be back speaking with you again. Well, I'm very happy to have you, and um, I'm very happy to go into... I, my intention, as I think you know, was, was to try to talk during the show about how different everything is now that yeah. we know the truth of the Catholic faith and also the, now that we have the relationship with God that we have through the sacraments versus the way everything was when we were uh, Jews, even perhaps uh, earnest Jews, trying our best to relate to God through Judaism right. because the yeah. danger that cradle Catholics have is to think that basically more, everyone more or less has what they have in the Catholic Church and that can be a great disincentive to having a passion for evangelization and a passion for basically bringing other people into the gifts that we have as Catholics. So uh, as an antidote to that, I wanted to kind of highlight that contrast. But unfortunately, some of our listeners may not have heard the March 19th show. So I will ask you if perhaps you can give a um, synopsis of your witness testimony. But uh, let me just say I I would really miss it if that synopsis did not include the <laughs> fundamental theophany and the dream of your great aunt. <laughs> so there's Oh, the... I will definitely include that. All right. Thank okay. you for, for making sure I do. All right. Well, uh, first of all, I have to say it was a, a very long process over. It took over really most of my life. Um, and I will say it started, as you just pointed out, with one uh, important, iconic dream in my life. Um, I had an, a great aunt, the, mother, uh, the sister of my grandmother, 
who had passed away when I was about 12. I never really knew her. I really only remember being in her presence once or twice. And um, at the age of 15, I'd gone through a, a great upheaval in my life with a severe depression. And coming through that depression, um, when I just surrendered to it and realized that there was no fighting it, I, uh, I did have a theophany then of feeling that, uh, seeing seeing the kingdom of God. I could actually see the kingdom of God in this world and knew that God was uh, for real and that he was not only for real, but he was present always everywhere around us and in us and among us. So one night I had a dream, and in that dream, it was very, very late at night in my mother's house, which is, of course, where I was living at the age of 16. And um, in the dream, uh, all the lights were on, though it was very late at night, and my sister and mother were sleeping in somewhere back in the house. And I walked down the hall to my bedroom, which is the end of the hall, and I creaked open the door, and my bedroom was pitch black. And I walked in there and closed the door in the blackness, and there sitting up in my bed where I would be sitting if I were sitting up in bed was my Aunt Clara and uh, almost uh, illuminated with a, a light on her or perhaps in her, I'm not sure. So I sat down on the edge of the bed and we talked and talked and talked. Well, actually, she talked. She came to me to tell me, she said, all about life after death. And um, it made, of course, you know how life goes. It made so much sense to me at the time. But I never wrote it down because I knew I'd always remember it. But of course, I don't remember it anymore. Although I'm fine with that, somewhere it's in there in my in my mind. And um, at the end of our talk, she said, "I have to go. It's morning now." And I realized, oh, it, it was light. And she stood up, and I stood up with her. And she leaned in and said to me, looking me in the eye very intently, and said, "I have to go because the Micaiah is here." And I looked to her left, and there was a being of light standing there next to her, uh, like little beads of light, and superimposed on this light in what almost I would call now, although I didn't know what it was at the time, like a hologram, was the face of Jesus in a, a kind of a portrait you might find in any Catholic school girl's bedroom. Um, and I knew, I said to myself in the dream, that's so I'll know who this is. And I realized when she'd looked into my eyes intently like that and said the word Mahaya, I thought to myself, she's saying Mahaya because we're Jewish, and so she can't say Messiah. And um, anyway, so they left through the door. I had a door to the outside of my room. And I opened my eyes. She woke up, and it was, in fact, morning. And uh, later I went on a great search to find out. I thought maybe Mahaya was the Hebrew word. <clears throat> and then, uh, but... Then I found out that my Aunt Clara was the only person in the family who spoke Yiddish, and it was a Yiddish word, and I've only found it in one or two places that uh, Yiddish for Messiah is Mahaya. So that was a little, um, you know, goosebumps time. Um, anyway, so then I continued on my search, and that, that uh, from the age of 16 into adulthood, I was on a spiritual search, um, which waxed and waned. Um, I had... A brief, I, I stole a Bible, to be honest, from a hotel room when I was staying with my mother once in Provo, Utah. I've since made a donation to the Gideons to make up for that, but I did take one of their Bibles, and um, it was contraband in our house. I don't think my mother would have been thrilled, well, first of all, with my stealing anything, and second of all, with my reading the New Testament. So 
it wasn't until a few years later when I had my own apartment going to college <clears throat> that I started reading um, the New Testament, and I was absolutely gobsmacked by it. I read those words in John, uh, my sheep know my voice. Um, I, they hear me, and or I hear them, and they follow me. Um, I know them. No, hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And I knew at that moment with complete conviction that I was one of those sheep, whatever that meant, I knew. And that the ears to hear that I had, what he was talking about were spiritual ears, not physical ears. And I knew I could hear him. <clears throat> anyway, I had a brief, after graduate school, I met a, I had a piano student, actually, who was a born-again Christian, and she put a lot of pressure on me to accept the Lord, accept the Lord. So at a certain point, I did. And I had a brief uh, association with Jews for Jesus. Um, it didn't stick because I'd read a lot about Eastern religions. And um, when I read Thomas Merton's book, Mystics and Zen Masters, and he said, <clears throat> all spokes, all, all religions are spokes of a wheel that lead to the same center. I thought, that's good enough for me. I'm out of here. So it didn't, it didn't really hold me. But the search continued. And then uh, later on in my life, I had um, some serious illness. Uh, where I, I couldn't eat uh, most foods, and um, it was very difficult and uh, very hard on me, uh, as it would be on anyone. And I went to a bookstore and uh, saw a book there called The Visions of the Children by Janice Chicano, and I picked it up and looked at it and started, started reading through it at the bookstore, and um, one of the visionaries mentioned something about involuntary fast, and um, the interviewer asked, what do you mean involuntary fast? And he said, well, if a person is not willing or able to fast, God will sometimes give them involuntary fast. And I knew in, deep in my heart that that was, that was what had happened to me, and that it was because of my sins, because I'd lived a sinful life. And which is, you may know, uh, Roy, of course, and many Jewish people listening may know, that's not really, although we atone for our sins on Yom Kippur, it's not really a, an awareness that we carry with us very much about our sinfulness, but but um, I was gratefully given that awareness. So anyway, um, that in itself, we're reading about the Blessed Mother apparition, although now there's question about it in the Church, but it doesn't bother me. Um, I know what happened to me. So um, that was not in, enough, in itself enough to convert me, but what happened is because of reading that, and they kept talking about deep prayer and this rosary, 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 I started praying the rosary, and the rosary was what converted me um, because... In my prayers, things that I read about, uh, had read about and not understood, but the teachings of the Church became clear to me under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit. And um, that's why I now recommend to anybody um, of any religion that they try praying the Rosary, because whatever your perspective, the Holy Spirit will work with you and work through you and teach you. Um, is that it? Is that enough? Wow, that's pretty good. <laughs> okay. Um, the uh, and let me just uh, say this is a, a live call-in radio show. So if any of our listeners have any questions for Alyssa or or for me or want to join the conversation, the number here is eight six six three 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 six two seven nine, which is eight six six three 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 Mary M A R Y for obvious reasons. Um, let me. Uh, if you don't mind, just... if you don't mind, can I correct you on one small point? It is Alisa. Alisa. So uh, I, I know it looks like Alisa, but it's Alisa. <laughs> very important point. I apologize. All right. 
No, no problem. Um, anyway, the um, just picking up on something you said, what um, what was your what was your sense of sin? What was your awareness of sin? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put it on your shoulders. I'm just going to make can, a controversial statement, which is I have a running battle with um, actually Alice von Hildebrand, who's quite a Catholic oh, yes. authority in many ways, because yes. I keep trying to convince her that not only before my conversion growing up Jewish and fairly seriously Jewish, was I unaware that, uh, frankly, fornication was a sin, but mm-hmm. um, that in the Old Testament, that it's actually not clear, certainly in the case of men, that fornication, adultery is a sin, but that fornication is even a sin. And, of course, mm-hmm. the patriarchs were quite guilty of it without any obvious sign, association of it being associated with sin. So mm-hmm. um, it's just one difference. It's not the difference I was planning to start on. But, mm-hmm. you know, one difference is that Catholics actually know what is displeasing to God and have a pretty easy way of knowing what they have to do to stay in good relationship with God. That's not that's not true in other religions. We can think of a religion which we won't name, which actually teaches its adherents that killing innocent people, if they're of the wrong mm-hmm. religion, is pleasing to mm-hmm. God. Right. Um, so and that, like, that I, itself okay, is a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. I'd like to make one point about that, too, about Catholics knowing what is pleasing to God. Um, from my point of view, anyway, it's not as though we read this is pleasing, that is pleasing, and so now we know right at first, at least I didn't, this is pleasing to God. I frankly didn't know what that phrase even meant. What do you mean pleasing to God? How can anyone know what's pleasing to God? But it's only by coming to understanding of the logic and the truth and the necessity through prayer and beginning to put into practice those things putting away from myself those things not pleasing to God and and carrying out those things which are pleasing to God and seeing the effect in my life outwardly and but more than that even in my soul and in my heart and in the sense of peace I have that became a confirmation of those things and plus the openness to God that I experienced through living that way. I think that's, that's an important point. Well, that's, and it is, you know, I mean, it's obviously, it's, it's wonderful, but it actually, my experience is almost the opposite. My experience was that although my conscience did tell me when I was doing something Mm -hmm. displeasing to God, um, my intellect, without having the catechesis behind it, my intellect Mm -hmm. just told me, oh, that's hang-ups, you know, Freud knew all about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, You know, that's just a psychological Mm hang-up, you should fight against that. So my intellect kind of worked against my conscience, and it's only Mm -hmm. when I had the information from the Catholic Church that I realized, no, that was not neurosis telling me not to do those Mm -hmm. things. It was actually, Mm -hmm. you know, God. Right, and I I don't think we're actually that far off in experience, because I also, I mean, I think we all have a conscience, but what we do, of course, is we bury it deeper and deeper within ourselves, so... But I did also have that conscience, but again, as you did, and especially any of us who have gone on for, quote-unquote, higher education, 
you know, are, we're, we're talked out of that conscience pretty darn quick. And uh, I certainly was, and I could make a, an excellent argument for how um, silly all those rules were. I mean, and I knew Freud, or studied Freud too. Freud talks about guilt, but not really the reason for guilt. Well, he talks about it, but he doesn't make a good case for it. Um, but that sense of sin um, made me sometimes the object of ridicule by my peers, and I guess I sort of started to believe them, that maybe there was something wrong with me, that you know, certain things that were fine for everybody else were not fine for me. You know, it's a, you just become very twisted up inside when you, you have, as you say, you're at war with yourself. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, one of the like things that. that I wish um, more Catholics were more appreciative of and something that I was incredibly envious of, in some sense, unknowingly all my life, is the penny catechism. I mean, when I yes. think of how, I, what agony I was in about what's the meaning of life, you know, yes. why are we here? Mm -hmm. And like the first question and answer is, you know, you know, we're here to, you know, love and serve God, and by that mean, you know, in that way, save our souls. Mm -hmm. And like, I and I try to remember that when I'm you know, interacting with my Jewish friends and family members that they don't know that I was where they are. I mean, I was a big old liberal. I mean, I know exactly where they are. And um, I was well known for being very vociferous about my liberal, liberal views and the way I saw things, but they don't know and they don't have that catechesis. So at times when I'm talking to them, when I do talk to them about these things, I, I might as well be speaking Chinese. And the only way for them to be open to even learning is is through prayer. Um, so their prayer and mine for them. And I don't mean that to sound in any way like I've got a secret they don't have. It's not, it's not like that. I know it can sound like that, but it really isn't. It's really that um, when you do have this conversion experience, your life changes so dramatically, and your life becomes so beautiful that you sincerely want that for every person and it breaks your heart when the people you love the most don't have that and you see them suffering. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, I didn't mean to get this personal, but my, my mother is yeah. 96 and, and um, right. she's a you know, semi-atheist Jewish woman, essentially. Mm, yeah. And she's obviously... Mm -hmm not going to live a whole lot longer and right. to see her um facing her own you know death in the near future without mm -hmm. any consolation without any belief in the afterlife without any sense mm -hmm. of god or purpose i mean it's just such mm -hmm. unnecessary suffering and i mean it it, it, I it, it wrenches my soul um i know well I, I i i understand yeah time is short and i also I have two elderly relatives in a similar situation, and um, yeah, I know. I uh, I actually once sneakily baptized one of my the closest people to me, one of my beloved family members, and then I felt so guilty about it that I confessed <laughs> and so told them, "I hope you don't mind, but when I was putting that holy water from Lourdes on you, I baptized you." <laughs> I hope that's okay. And um, I guess I, I read now that you're really not supposed to do that unless it's an emergency. But I guess in my heart, I felt at that time it was an emergency, so so I did it. So I don't know if that's something 
you know, well, it's certainly valid. I mean, it may be it may something be illicit, to think about. It's certainly valid. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, no, no. I've I, I even memorized <laughs> I memorized the baptismal formula in Hebrew. So if I'm caught mm-hmm. muttering something while sprinkling the water, it will sound like a Jewish prayer. <laughs> You're, prepared. <laughs> You're prepared. I love that. That's great. That's wonderful. So. So, um, well, are there other are, are there other before and after contrasts you feel like uh, addressing? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, as you brought up, we talked recently by email. The whole the whole um, perspective on suffering changes greatly when you have a conversion such as I've had, because when you're, if I could use the term, in the world, so to speak. Even if you think you're connected to God, but you, you know you see suffering as something that you wish you didn't have. That why is it happening to you? And you want it to be over. And and even if you don't voice it to yourself this way, you do think it's without a purpose. And when you have a conversion, you realize no, this whole life is a penance. Um, you know, if you read Genesis, you know you'll understand about original sin and. Original sin does come from um, Genesis, um, the Hebrew uh, Old Testament, um, even though the, the term was used. But, you know, obviously if you have the the, the first man, and, and Adam, Adam, this means man, by the way, it doesn't necessarily mean some guy named Adam, but the first man um, choosing, and woman, choosing to uh, do exactly what God told them not to do in God cursing them, and I think it's very interesting in God's curse to note the first thing he says is, cursed be the ground because of you. So he doesn't just curse the people. He curses the earth. He curses the world. This is a fallen world. And so because of that separation, and if you don't like the word sin, just see it as separation from God. Because of that separation from God, the purpose of our life here is to heal that separation and to help others to do the same. So, and penance is a part of that. Um, if you don't mind, if I could digress for a moment for people who don't understand the idea of um, reparation for sins. Uh, you know, I know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who feel that once you convert um, and become a Christian, that's it, done deal, you know, you're safe. But... Um, I, I do beg to differ politely, respectfully, because I, I have two words for them, and those words are Judas Iscariot. So it's hard for us to imagine that Judas Iscariot is with the apostles and Jesus in heaven. I mean, that's one thing. Um, and Paul says very, very plainly in, I think it's Ephesians, he says, all of us will stand in, before Christ in judgment to receive recompense for our deeds, either good or bad. So that clearly says to me, no, there is something to be done. And the whole idea of reparation in the Catholic Church, um, yes, we are forgiven as soon as we become Christians. We are forgiven. But it's the, the analogy that's used very often, and this is for our, maybe for our non-Christian friends listening, is this. So Donnie's outside playing with a ball, and his dad says, move away from the houses, you're too close. And Johnny doesn't listen, and pretty soon, of course, what happens is the ball goes right through the neighbor lady's window. And so Johnny comes into the house in tears and says, Dad, I'm so sorry. I, my ball went through Mrs. Jones's window, and I broke it. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. 
of course, the father does what? He says, yes, son, I forgive you. And he says, I will take care of that debt, and I will pay it. However, none of us, the sense of justice in all of us, would cry out if we didn't know that that father is going to tell the son, but you must mow the lawn every week, and I'll pay you a certain amount until that debt is satisfied. And so our Catholic notion of reparation goes something like that. And although it's very clear in the Bible that not all sickness is um, the result of sin, because, you know, we know about the man for whom, to whom Jesus said, you know, it, well, when he was asked it, he said, no, it's, the sin is not because of anything he did to glorify God, uh, that God may be glorified. But, but it also, in the Bible, if you read carefully, uh, is also mentioned as uh, sickness and, and, and um, just ill health and all kinds of sickness, mental, emotional, physical, are often um, the result of sin. And so taking that on and doing that penance and offering it to God is, uh, is a way to make reparation. So just wanted to talk about that a little bit. Sure, and, and, and we know from, for instance, uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary in Fatima that, mm-hmm. that when people suffer, if they offer it in union with Jesus' suffering, it purchases yes. grace for the conversion of sinners. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. That that's mm-hmm. that. If you want, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, Saint Saint uh, Teresa, uh, Saint Therese of Lisieux, um, uh, remember she was praying fervently for the conversion of a condemned murderer, and mm-hmm. uh, oh, offering yeah. her her mortifications for that. And uh, I think mm-hmm. on the gallows, you know, he he had a he had a, a last minute conversion and stuff. And yeah. um, the Blessed Virgin Mary told the um, Lucia, was it Lucia to um, when they were doing those mortifications, like wearing the ropes yes. around their waist and stuff to mm-hmm. um, basically offer up that suffering for the conversion oh, of yes. sinners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. All of them. And uh, Jacinta was really zealous in that little little seven year old girl that she was just an amazing, amazing saint. Um, she yeah. loved Jesus so much that um, in fact, she loved Jesus so much that. I think um, our Blessed Mother, or maybe it was the angel, but I think, no, because he only kind of came around at the beginning. It must have been our Blessed Mother told her, look, only wear that rope around your waist during the day. Our Lord yeah. doesn't want you wearing it at night, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah, and I think, too, um, you know, I had an interesting experience very, very recently where someone I know who was Jewish has... Um, a very difficult disease of a certain body organ. And um, that person was in horrific pain, worse than usual. It just reached such a pitch. And I was frantic because um, my empathy goes out to those who suffer so much that I, my mother always used to say, you know, using a more generic term, you're a sensitive because I used to take on the suffering of others. I really felt it strongly. So in desperation, I knelt before the Sacred Heart of Jesus and I said, please, Lord, give me, give me what that person has, that their pain may be lessened because it was like hot, cold, poking that person in the organ and, I, and every minute of every day. And I couldn't think about anything else. And um, as we do, we ha- I don't know if you've experienced this, we seem to have this sort of strange amnesia that sits in about what we pray for. We sort of forget about it. And um, not long after that, I got an infection in that body part, a very, very bad infection. And um, I'm only getting over it now. It's been a month. And um, in the meanwhile, that person was found to have an infection on top of the, the problem that's there all the time. 
and that infection has been eased, and hopefully grace has been imparted. Now, this person, even though that person has experienced a miracle of healing through the Blessed Mother on her Feast of Assumption with an eye problem, it's hard for that person, and I understand, I'm not criticizing, it's hard for that person to accept that there's anything supernatural about what happened to me and that it relates to them. And I'm okay with that because I love that person so much, it doesn't even matter. It's fine. Mm-hmm. But it's just an interesting thing to note the way God can work sometimes. Oh, absolutely. And, um, yeah. And when somebody, speaking of that whole thing in Fatima, um, somebody had asked um, St. Bernadette, um, why do you have words? Why do you not... Pray for yourself to be healed. You know, she had that terrible tumor on her knee. Why do you not pray to our Lord to heal you? And she just said, because suffering is my job. <laughs> and I think I understand that sometimes because, sometimes because I'm, willing, I'm willing to undergo that. And I think many of us are, if it will mean the redemption of those and their being able to live the, the beautiful life that we are allowed to live, even on this earth, but certainly when heaven over. And at, at the risk of almost sounding trite, um, mm-hmm. of course, Jesus is the ultimate example of that. Right, um, of and if we we're are, going we are to be imitating yeah. Jesus, we are yeah. going to be taking on suffering for the good of others, because that's exactly what that's he did. Okay. That's what he modeled for us, yes. Yeah. And said, take up your cross and follow me, yes, exactly. Now, this is a little bit uh, out of left field, but I couldn't help okay. wondering, I know... I, I know that you're married, as am I, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. I was thinking for some reason about the desire we all have to be perfectly loved and mm-hmm. the extent to which uh, basically on earth with you know fallen human beings, there's mm-hmm. always going to be a little, um, you know, a little defect in the perfection of that love. And right. I was wondering if, you had something to say about that, the desire to be perfectly loved, how that is transformed once you know Jesus. Oh, yes, definitely. Well, first of all, um, I, ha- I was married before to a wonderful man, and um, but we did have to go our separate ways for various reasons. And um, so I've been in a worldly marriage, and I've been now for 17 years in a sacramental marriage. And there's no comparison in certain ways, the sacramental marriage. You are always going to have conflict. You are always going to have times where each of you feels misunderstood by the other. But thankfully, thank you to the Lord, we have the Lord. We have each a prayer life, and we do prayer, and we always come around, and there's always forgiveness, one for each for the other. And we see ourselves as you know, soldiers together in this life, not against anyone in the, uh, in the life, but just soldiers soldiering through what our life is and our growth towards the Lord. And that just changes your perspective. Would you agree? Yes, I will add another dimension to that, which is the mortification which comes from marriage. In other words, yes. oh, if yes. one's, <laughs> there's always going to be sacrifices and there are always going to be disappointments associated with the other person. Right. And is seen in a worldly sense, that can lead to resentment of the other person. But we know that marriage is, I mean, it's designed for a number of things. But one of the things it's designed for 
is to bring about our perfection through mm-hmm. the interaction with the other person, including through the suffering which might come and the mm-hmm. um, denial of ourselves, which definitely is going Absolutely. to come you're living for somebody Absolutely. else. Mm-hmm. Even in my first marriage, and I wasn't a Christian, I remember jokingly thinking to myself, well, if you want to become a Christian, just get married, because that'll get you there in a hurry, because you really can't be married um, successfully in any way without a certain humility, a certain willingness to forgive, a certain willingness to put the other first. I mean, that's just a given no matter what, and it, all the more so in a sacramental marriage where you are both aware that that is the purpose of your marriage, that that's one of the purposes of your marriage, is um, it is a, a blessed sacrament between the uh, two of you with God um, for your growth. And um, so it makes, even in marriage, the suffering our joys. And, um, yeah, it's it's very different, very different. Yeah, I, I, I have a number of friends who are religious and, in other words, are monks and nuns. And yeah. it's clear that for religious, the greatest source of their mortification is living in community, actually, is, is interaction with other <laughs> exactly people. Right. And for people who aren't religious, the greatest source of their mortification yep. is um, the the friction with other people in the world. And, and very often, uh, friction is not the right word, but the self-denial, which comes right. from the close relationship with one's spouse. Right. I also do have friends, too, who are monks and, and uh, sisters and uh one, in fact, a cloistered sister in um, the monastery in San Diego, uh, a lady of Carmel, and uh, I and I know that to be true. And there, and Thomas Merton said that too. I'm not. I have to. I sound like I'm a big Thomas Merton fan, and I do respect all the good that he brought, but I, I can't say I really am. But I just do remember he he happened to say, "We're all here to be hair shirts to one another," and that phrase that stuck with me. I understand yeah. that. Um, the, uh, here, here's another, another question out of left field for you, which is, um, do you feel like you are disloyal to your Jewish ancestors that you've betrayed your Judaism by, uh, becoming a fervent Catholic? Not at all. I feel that I have fulfilled my Jewish. However, at the beginning, it was very, very difficult to pray, to pray the rosary, you know, um, uh, you know, Mary full grace. Blessed art thou among blessed is, uh, you know, you, even to say the word Jesus in any kind of way that denoted any kind of um, divinity or, or even specialness other than being a man was really not something that was part of our Jewish life. So that was difficult for me um, to, to call myself in the prayer a sinner, you know, pray for us sinners, you know, even though on one hand, you know, I told you I had that awareness of myself as a sinner, but on the other, you know, that intellectual side of me, well, wait a minute, what's wrong with me? It's like everybody else. So those things, I mean, really stuck in my craw. It was hard for me to say those words at first. But um, again, as I sort of persevered and, and did, you know, at the first, when I when I first decided to join the RCIA, I we talked about this on the phone once, I left the RCIA the first year. Um, the, the priest was, there were all, I felt like, I, I really felt like a fish out of water because I was so zealous and I'd been reading, you know, Story of the Soul by uh, St. Therese and all kinds of spiritual literature and a lot of the people in, in there were, and God bless them, but, you know, they were 
I'm here because my husband's Catholic, so I'm going to become a Catholic. And, you know, well, I thought I should get confirmed because my children are in religious school. You know, so it was to me, it was like, well, where are all these people? <laughs> where are these people whose books I'm reading? I mean, they're all dead. Are there any? And so I was already feeling that way. And then the good priest, wonderful man, Father Kim, um, told a story once um, about being on an airplane where there were um, so Hasidic Jews, and uh, he said, you know, would uh, they 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 took out their prayer shawls at dawn, and I have seen that on transatlantic flights too, um, to to say their prayers. And you know, they had the little the little side curls, and he said that, and one woman snickered, and I thought, I am out of here. I don't need this. Um, so I gave into my that feeling of betrayal and a feeling of solidarity solidarity to my Jewish. Um, heritage and my family, and um, but I made my way back, and um, because I really simply had, you know, like Peter, nowhere else to go. I had nowhere else to go. So um, but, when I found myself wandering around in a Christian bookstore in front and ended up in the Catholic section, I said, "I'm home." So I did re-enter um, the church at that time. But at that time, when I started praying the Rosary again, I said, "Well, I'm not going to pray the Creed because I don't know if I believe in all of that." So I didn't. Um, but that was, a, you know, that was enough. It led me into it. I mean, even the, the little children at Fatima, if you remember, so cute. They were playing, praying a very truncated form of the rosary. And the Blessed Mother said, okay, you need to pray it properly now. So, you know, whatever little prayer you can eat out, God will take and use and bless you. But, you know, when you say, I mean, I understand the ambivalence about, about, mm-hmm. um, uh, how can I put it, F- still feeling united with the Jewish people and identifying mm-hmm. as a Jew and, and feeling a little uh, kind of defensive in the in the face mm-hmm. of that snickering and so forth, or, or rather taking umbrage at, at the insult. But yeah. in fact, we're doing, it sounds self-serving, but we're doing, you know, a million times more good for oh, yeah. our people by being in the Catholic right. Church and we'd ever do if we were laying to fill in every morning, not that... That's relevant oh, to you. Not that that, yeah. Well, of course, I didn't understand that at the time. I was very new and very tender. You know, I was very tender and very new. So I didn't understand that, but, but it, it was explained to me through prayer later, and I, of course, now understand it. And I feel, in fact, I don't feel I am more Jewish than ever I was before. I know more about the Old Testament. I know more about, understand more about the customs than even many of my, my Jewish family members. Um, and I feel intensely more Jewish than ever before. And when I try to explain, of course, that, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church is the Jewish Church. It is the Jewish religion, but, you know, that's not understandable to them as it once was not to me. So I understand that they don't get it, but I do keep repeating it in hopes that someday some of them will at least, at least be open to investigating that possibility. Well, I, I don't know. This is probably not going to be a great successful sales pitch in most cases. But um, one of the approaches that seems obvious to me is, look, the question is, was Jesus the Jewish Messiah or wasn't he? Was he the promised Messiah of Judaism, hence the name of the show, or mm-hmm. wasn't he? And if he was right. a Jew who was a Jew before he knew the Jewish Messiah, who then becomes a follower of the Jewish Messiah, is hardly making mm-hmm. himself any less Jewish by following the Jewish Messiah. Right. Yes, I've said all of that. Yes. 
I know. The thing is, Roy, and you know this as well as I do, and a lot of people out there know this. If someone is determined not to believe, there is nothing you can say. There is no proof possible. There is no logical reasoning. There's no argument. If they want to turn away, they will turn away. And at that point, all you can do is pray for them and um, and turn it over to God. And I don't mean by all you pray, can do, meaning that that's not very much. That's a lot. And and offer sacrifices and, and prayer and um, know that and hope that someday they will understand that, um, you know, that, that you're not, you're not just sort of fab, nobody's fabricated this. This is all documented. It's all history. I mean, it's all there. Yeah. The, but I, um, and there's an old saying, you know, two Jews, three opinions. So I'm not too surprised that we keep coming at things from different angles, but I remember mm -hmm. long before my conversion, when I was a, uh, at, a graduate student at Harvard, walking through or bicycling through Harvard Square, I think, actually, and a Jew for Jesus shoved a flyer in my hand, which I immediately crumpled up and threw in the nearest trash barrel. You know, I was I was right, indignant. Right. And, you know, yeah. but that flyer had like this cartoonish drawing of Jesus wearing a yarmulke and wearing a talus. And um, I don't even remember what it said. But, you know, even despite all my hostility, that planted a seed. I had never thought of Jesus oh, as yeah. a Jew before. Yeah. And well, I don't really think you were coming at it through, through from different angles. I think that that that's understood. That all that you do and say, you are planting seeds. Yeah. I yeah. Do. So the rejection. But I don't think that. Yeah. Go ahead. The 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 the, the rejection at the moment is not mm -hmm. evidence that the evangelization was in the long run unsuccessful. No, this is true. But what I'm saying is that you can't continue, you know, battering your head against no. that wall and hoping it to come down. You have to, at a certain point, turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm doing everything I can. And, and you know, I need to, if, if you want me to get out of the way, let me know. And the Lord will let you know. And if there's an opening for discussion, then, you know, the Lord will bring it about. And if not, you know, but no, I, I don't, I didn't mean in any way to imply that anything that you say or do is wasted because I know it's not. Yeah. And I, like I remember you, with your being on the airplane, and, a, you know, a, mm -hmm. a young woman in the seat next to me being a fervent, you know, kind of born again Christian. And I mean, I was full right. of contempt for her while she was talking and stuff, yeah. but I never um, forgot that right. conversation. I never forgot her kind of, you know, glowing eyes and enthusiasm. There was something again, right. a, a seed was planted. These things are seeds. Yes. Right. You knew that person had something. Um, and, um, yeah, the seed was planted. And, yeah, and that's, that is how it comes about. But you can't just keep trying to. You can't. What I'm saying is you can say what you have to say. But you can't keep saying it and keep pressing and keep pushing. Um, it, it, it's not going to. It's not going to. After a certain point, it can go the other way and make it oh, more absolutely. difficult. For the person. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but um, you know, I do. Uh, gosh, I guess I guess one of the reasons I'm harping on this a little bit is that there is this politically correct attitude that, you know, we don't want to offend somebody. We don't yeah. want to hurt their feelings. You know, if we, you know, you know, you know, to even say to a Jewish person, um, for instance, oh, 
well, here's an example, but if we were to say to a Jewish person, wow, you know, how wonderful it must be to be Jewish, you, you realize that from my perspective, you're related by blood to the God-man, you know, mm-hmm. that must be terrific. Yeah. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. well, you wouldn't want to say that because it's, you know, it's offensive or you wouldn't want to say, yeah. um, you know, that, you know, I, I, as a Catholic, I feel like I'm, you know, adopted into your family because the Jews were the mm-hmm. original right. people in relationship with God or stuff. But the truth is, mm-hmm. they, these things may be superficially offensive, but they're always going to plant seeds. And if I, I think, again, it's in St. Saint, Saint Paul that, you know, if, 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 if they don't hear the word, how are they going to believe? Right, exactly. Well, one thing I don't think, speaking for myself, I don't think I'm too in, um, in danger of being politically correct. In fact, I think a lot of my friends and family members and friends on Facebook, which I wish I were a little more politically correct, because, you know, I mean, I'm out there, and I am not ashamed, and I'm not afraid to talk about it. And um, so I agree with you 100% about that. We have to say what is for us and what is for really everybody. Uh, yes, and, and I guess I guess there's this, especially right now, there's a particular mm-hmm. sensitivity about um, about evangelizing the Jewish yeah. community, which is mm-hmm. um, actually, I think Rosalind Moss says it's the worst anti-Semitism there is, refusing to evangelize yeah. Jews. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I agree with that. That's a very good point. I like that. I, I know of her, but I hadn't heard that and i think that's an excellent way to look at it that's so true yeah good to keep so, in mind so any other any other dimensions that make you um grateful at the transformation in your life that was brought about by your conversion mm, yeah i would say as i get older you know you mentioned that to me about aging as i get older i don't have um the same fears that maybe Somebody would who doesn't have connection with God. As I as I get older, I I know I just get closer um, to being you know at home with the Lord um, rather than present in the body, and um, and I'm fine with that. And my my recent illness, I had mentioned in during my conversion uh, testimony on the last uh, program that we did, uh, how I was in the hospital for seven months, and um, I I did in fact die and. But I, I don't remember the actual death, but I was very near death, and I did have, you know, several near-death experiences. And uh, I know for a fact on the other side that there's glory and light and goodness that wait for us who love God. And um, so that's changed my perspective. It's not something I wonder about in the same way that I might have had I not undergone the conversion I've undergone. And um, reading the Bible is just... Um, a blessed experience for me. Um, I feel that God really does infuse me with His Spirit through His Word in a way like never before, as I get older especially. I don't know why, it's just, I guess, maturing in the faith. And um, so I never, never let a day go by without Scripture reading, and I always make it the last thing I do before I go to sleep at night. And um, it gives me great peace. Not only mental peace, but actual physical peace. I feel my body responding um so you know that's different i had a lot of anxiety before i think before my uh conversion that i don't have anymore just sometimes even just free-floating anxiety thing for no reason and i don't have that anymore i have peace 
Wow. Well, I wish I did, but at least I know with my head now that I should have peace, <laughs> yeah. even if sometimes it doesn't, you know, reach my adrenal glands or whatever. Um, anyway, I want to thank you. Uh, we've pretty much come to the uh, the end of our time together. I, it's, uh, I found it very enjoyable and enlightening. I hope our listeners did too. I don't know if you have any final thoughts you want to share. Yes, I do. God does not mind doubt. God's fine with doubt. So go ahead and tell God you don't believe in him. He's okay with that, but be open to learning something different or learning something new. Because if you make your mind up in advance that God, there is no God, and even if there is, he can't reach you and change your life, then you are closing yourself up. There's only so much God will do. He will not interfere with your free will to choose. So my advice is keep an open mind and as much as you can an open heart. Wow, beautiful. I'll just close with a quote from, uh, uh, or a story from Rhonda Chervin, another enthusiastic Mm -hmm. Jewish Catholic convert. Her -hmm. prayer, which brought about her um, conversion, God revealed him, Jesus revealed himself to her. Uh, She was a Jewish atheist at the time, and her prayer was, God, if there is a God, save my soul if I have a soul. And that was enough for Jesus to reveal himself to her. Beautiful. So, yeah, nothing wrong with doubt if you're honest about it and if you're open, Mm -hmm. actually, if you're if you're seeking the resolution of that doubt one way or the other. Right. So exactly. Anyway, thank you very much for having me on. Yes, it was very enjoyable for me. And I also hope for everybody else. Thank you. Thank you. And and, uh, again, if anyone wants to listen to the uh, full fuller account of Elisa's. Uh, witness testimony <laughs> conversion story, which I really do recommend. It's it's certainly worth the full account. It's uh, the March 19th episode of Radio Maria, available on the Radio Maria website or on uh, my website, salvationisfromthejews.com. And again, also actually available on YouTube. If you look for, if you just Google YouTube, Roy Showman, uh, Radio Maria, it'll come up. And that's all the time we have for today. So thank you very much for joining us. And please join us again next week on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Bye for now.